there's a kind of tradition in Buddhism, in our... God, there's a lot of people, aren't there? <laughs> there's a tradition of dedicating talks. So I'd quite like to dedicate this talk, actually, to the memory of a very good friend of mine, who, in fact, I always associate with Manchester, although for a long time he didn't live in Manchester, and that's Gunarucci. So he's a friend of... A lot of people in this room were friends of his, and he was a very dear friend of mine, probably one of the best friends I've ever had in my whole life. And uh, I was thinking of him earlier today, actually, just as I was coming into Manchester, and thought he did die quite a few years ago now, so it seemed appropriate to dedicate my talk to his memory. So there you go. So, yeah, I had some other ideas for the class, which didn't really uh, include me standing here talking. It was to do with you all walking about and doing exercises that I was going to lead. But I decided after consulting with Moksha Jyoti that maybe a traditional talk would be good for Nirvana. So that's what I'm going to do, just to prove I can do a traditional talk. So Nirvana Day is actually a day that has great importance, uh, as Moksha Jyoti said, in the Buddhist calendar. For me personally, it's a, a festival or a day that has incredible importance because for a long time I had a name or a few names to give it every single Nirvana day puja because I knew such an extraordinary number of people who died. So I'm not going to go into all that because I have actually done that here. I have given a talk here which is available from Clear Vision. Um, one of the few talks by Dharmacharanis which are available from Clear Vision called Something Like Death, on, well, from a certain period, yeah. And uh, so if you want to hear a bit more about my own relationship with death and how it kind of impacted on my own life from childhood onwards, you could listen to that. Okay. So it's a, it's a day that I've... And also my mother died on the 18th of February in 1978 when I had just got involved in the movement. So, in fact, that happened a week before I had my Mitra ceremony, a week to the day before I became a Mitra into the FWBO. So, in fact, it was during the Nirvana Day Festival that I became a Mitra. So it's kind of been a thread for whatever reason, for all sorts of reasons, it's a day that has great meaning for me in the Buddhist calendar. And it's, um, it's oh, I think sometimes people think it's a slightly strange festival to have, you know, to celebrate the fact that the Buddha died but I suppose, as you've already heard, in a way, I suppose what we're celebrating... Well, I think there's two reasons why Nirvana Day is such an important ca- um, event in the Buddhist calendar. And I think one of them is just to express our gratitude to the Buddha. Just the very fact that the Buddha lived and died and left a legacy of teachings and a legacy of practices and a legacy of, um, well, a particular path that presumably has touched the life of everybody in this room to some extent, there's already something there to show some gratitude for. So I think all of the festivals fall into that, including Nirvana Day. But the particular um, thing about Nirvana Day is it reminds us of death. It reminds us of impermanence. Very, very basic Buddhist, Buddhist teaching. Uh, Sangharachita said when somewhere, like, if you could condense the entire Dharma to one word, that word would be impermanence. So impermanence is the heart of Buddhism. And death, if you like, is the most obvious expression 
of impermanence. It's obviously it's not the only expression of impermanence. Loss and impermanence touches us in so many ways throughout our life, from seemingly small losses through to those big losses of people that are very dear to us and through to the fact that we too at some point will die. So that's the one sure thing about everybody in this room. Well, two sure things about everybody in this room. You were born and you die. Everything in between that is up for grabs. But those two things are given. We were born and we'll die. So all I want to do actually this evening is tell you a little bit about the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, which is the Sutra in the Pali Canon, which describes more or less the last year of the Buddha's life, up to and including the moment of his death or his Parinibbana. So that's all I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you the story of the last year of the Buddha's life. And then I'm going to draw some points out from that, which I think are particularly interesting to us living today as practitioners in the 21st century. So the first thing that happens, this sutra opens. uh, The first thing that there is in this sutra is a war about to happen. So a clan or a tribe or a peoples called the Vajians are about to go to war. And their king wants to ask the Buddha how it's going to go. What is the outcome going to be? So he sends a minister to ask the Buddha. And the Buddha really just kind of bypasses it, actually. He doesn't really talk about the battle or the war or what's going to happen at the end. He takes the opportunity to give a discourse, a talk, directly to these people about the seven factors that create stability in a society. And he then goes on and he talks to the Sangha, to the, the monks, the nuns, um, you know, the, whoever was there, lay people. Maybe there were some other beings there, who knows. And he takes the opportunity to give a talk on the seven factors that create stability to Sangha. So I just thought I'd tell you what they were, actually. So these are seven points for the stability of a spiritual community. So the first one is to meet in large numbers. So that's quite good. We're doing that tonight, so... And, um, well, meeting in large numbers is something that we do quite well in the Western Buddhist Order and the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order. We do that well and we do meetings quite well. (laughs) So, uh, I once heard somebody say that they thought Zen practitioners did silence really well and Tibetan practitioners did ritual really well and the Western Buddhist Order did meetings (laughs) really well. And I was a bit huffy when I heard that because I thought it didn't sound very spiritual. But actually, when I thought about it, I thought there's a real practice in there, actually. And uh, this is nothing to do with Parinavana, but is something that is of interest to me, which is how do you meet and how do you come together and what does collective mean and what does collective practice mean and what does it actually mean to form community? So, you know, if meeting in large numbers, it's not, you know, is it enough just to come and be here together? Is it something more than that? And I think there's something in the whole idea of consensus, which I think is a really highly developed spiritual practice. So I'm quite happy to be part of an order that does meetings quite well, because I think there's something about coming together and really trying to be who you are, with everything that you bring to that, and at the same time open to the impact and influence of other people that you're working with. So I think there's a real trick in there about how to overcome ego, which is, as we know, a very good Buddhist practice. So meeting together in large numbers is one factor for the stability of the spiritual community. But it's not enough just to be in large numbers. The second point the Buddha comments is assemble in harmony. So it's not enough just to have 
a hundred people all fighting with each other in a big room. That probably doesn't qualify. It's probably not even enough just to have a few people. In fact, the other day I was telling somebody I was in the right kind of mood to start a fight in an empty room. I was in such a bad mood the other day. I was in such a bad mood. And uh, I realised I was just kind of looking for a bit of a, you know, little thing. Uh, it wasn't my fault. <laughs> no. <laughs> it was somebody else's fault. No, no, it was completely and utterly my fault. I was just in a really bad mood, and I didn't realise it until I came into the kitchen and found other people in there. And then I realised I was in a bad mood. I'd been fine in my own room, doing my own thing. So maybe that's another reason why coming together in numbers is quite effective sometimes to help you know how you are. And, of course, it gave me working ground. And, of course, having all this Buddhist practice behind me, I was able to bite my tongue and not say the things that were coming into my head. So that was good. I think it's good sometimes to share your victories with people. So then the third point that the Buddha says in terms of the stability of the Sangha, the stability of the community, is to follow the precepts. So ethical behaviour, come together in harmony and follow the precepts that are held in common. And then there's a fourth one, which is, of course, an extremely important one, which is to honour and respect your elders. So I just mentioned that in passing. Okay. (laughs) So mine's a coffee with soya. <laughs> there's something about that, isn't there? There is something about, I suppose, the openness to the fact that there are people with more or less experience. So the Buddha's bringing that in. So it's not saying anything other than that, that there is an openness to experience. The fourth, no, sorry, the fifth factor in the stability of the community is to fight craving. Now that's quite an interesting one because it's not, it, I suppose it just suggests that craving will arise. Things come up, you know, we do get into bad moods, so we do have cravings. And I suppose the point is that a community, a spiritual community, is nothing more than a whole bunch of people trying to come together and create something. So all sorts of things will happen in that, won't they? You know, all sorts of cravings will arise and all sorts of negative emotions will arise. We will not only form, but we'll storm at times. And I suppose what the Buddha is saying here is, well, just recognise that. So within any group, within any community, all sorts of things come into being, come into play. Then esteem forest abodes. I suppose not in large numbers. I think that's the bit where you go off in solitude and inward practice and remain mindful. So they're the seven factors that the Buddha comments. So I just think it's quite interesting at the beginning of this sutra, the beginning of the last year of the Buddha's life, he hasn't gone off into a hermitage. He hasn't gone away on his own to kind of prepare for death. He's still very engaged in the community that he's involved in. He's still very much engaging with the necessities of the people that he's coming in contact with. He's still able, in a way, to take whatever comes his way and relate very strongly on the the terms of that community of those people and then in some way turn that into something that's actually of use for practitioners. I think there's just something in that, that there's so much that we come across that actually if we can really engage quite often, there's a lot of teaching to be found in quite surprising places. So the Buddha managed to find a teaching there in a crowd of people about to go off to battle. You know, even in very strange and unfortunate circumstances, there is something to be to be found. 
Anyway, and there's a whole other list. He gives another series of lists, but the one thing that really jumped out at me when I read it was that the thing that he says is that the community coming together under all those conditions must come together in loving kindness, privately and publicly. So something again in that, that the community, the basis of how we relate needs to somehow be loving kindness. That's the basis for our relations, but publicly and privately. So not just behind closed doors, but neither just in public. So in a way, a seamless life, I suppose, really, when we're really practising and we're really able to be who we are as practitioners in every situation in our life with loving kindness. Okay, so having done that, having talked to these people about to go off to battle, the Buddha just goes off and he starts to wander. And he spends the rest of that year, his last year of life, going around different communities, going around different groups and just talking to people, which is what he'd done for the 45 years pre- the 44 years previously. Now, interestingly, in 11 of the 14 places that he visits, he gives the same discourse or the same teaching. And the teaching that he gives is, I'll just, I'm just going to read you um, one version of that. So... Okay. He says, so he's at a particular place and he's in the brick hall. So they had brick halls. We have Fadra halls and all sorts of halls. He's in the brick hall. And he says, he gave this talk. Such and such is virtue. Such and such is concentration. Such and such is understanding. Concentration fortified with virtue brings great benefits and great fruit. Understanding fortified with concentration brings great benefits and great fruits. And the heart fortified with understanding becomes completely liberated. So that's the teaching that he gives. In 11 out of 14 places, he teaches what's known as the threefold path. Virtue or ethics concentration or meditation and understanding or wisdom it's the most basic teaching you could imagine in some ways and that was what he chose to share with people in those last months of his life now the buddha knew he was coming up to his death there's all sorts of things come into the sutra where it's obvious that he knows that he is in the last leg if you like of his journey uh, of this life so it's interesting that that's what he chooses to leave with his with his um, his followers, lay followers, monastic practitioners, the threefold path. He doesn't actually give great philosophical discourses in this last period of his life. He doesn't go into great sort of, you know, uh, explain great meditation practices that are really, really, really esoteric and can really, really take you somewhere new and exciting. He just goes again and again and again. Very basic threefold path, virtue or ethics, meditation, uh, wisdom. So a very practical kind of teachings really that he gives us at those last points in his life. Then he kind of carries on. He keeps going round and teaching and travelling. I'm going to come back to the, the threefold path later on. So he keeps going on. And at some point, Sariputra, who's one of his oldest disciples and most attained disciples actually dies he dies just before the buddha and quite a few people in the assembly are terribly upset by this including the buddha's cousin and companion ananda now if you've read much pali canon ananda's 
very much in there. And he's a great character. He's a very sympathetic character. He's sort of a bit of an everyman character, I sometimes think, in literary terms. He kind of often says the thing that you would quite like to say. He often asks the Buddha the question that you would quite like to ask. Did you have the opportunity? So he's particularly upset by this. And he comes along to the Buddha and he's telling him about this. He's telling the Buddha that, that Sariputra's just died and he's terribly upset. So he says... So this is Ananda say, says to the Buddha, Lord, this novice has just told me that the venerable Sariputra has finally attained Nibbana. These here are his bowl and his robes. Indeed, Lord, when I heard this... I felt as though my body were gone rigid. I couldn't see straight. All my ideas became unclear. So Ananda, who's a very highly developed practitioner, is terribly upset that Sariputra has died. He really is upset. So although he has worked very hard in all sorts of things and in all sorts of ways, he's still upset by the fact that somebody he cares about dies. And I think this is quite important because I think sometimes when people... I've done used to do quite a lot of um, loss and bereavement workshops, which some people in this room, in fact, have been to. And I used, honestly, I used to find Buddhists the worst people in the world to work with in this kind of area. Because they had this idea that they should be okay with death. You know, because, well, we've learned all about impermanence and we've read the sutras and we've done the practices. And, of course, we know that everything that arises falls and that everything that's born dies. And so why am I broken-hearted? You know, are we broken-hearted because we're human? You know, we're broken-hearted because we love people and we're broken-hearted because loss is an enormous thing to happen in our lives. And you can never really prepare for it. You, of course you can prepare for it to a great extent. But that actual moment of losing somebody who you love dearly and who's so important to you, and it's happened to everybody here, or it will happen to everybody here. You know, just really having somebody who's so meaningful in your life just suddenly not be there anymore. Of course, your heart breaks. Even Ananda's heart broke. Milarepa, his heart broke when his teacher Marpa died. You know, grief happens, our heart breaks. And I think it's just really important to know that and to recognise that and just to be with that, just to sit with that. Not to put some layer on top of that of thinking that we somehow ought to be okay with loss. Of course, in the bigger picture, maybe we do have tools. Maybe we do have understandings that help us. But I think in the moment of actually feeling a loss, where are those tools? We don't immediately have access to them. You know, Of course, we're human beings. However many years we've been practicing, however many years we've, we've understood on an intellectual level the truths of Buddhism. So, but of course it's not the end of the story. Of course there is a way of opening our heart to the teaching that's in that. There's a way of opening our heart beyond the grief. But I think unless we allow ourselves to feel pain and grief, we never really open ourselves to what's beautiful and what's there in that, that um, loss. Because I think we don't allow ourselves to feel the beauty of the love that's behind the loss. We only mourn what we love. We don't mourn what we don't care about. 
you know, if you're really indifferent to something or somebody, really it's not such a big deal when they're not in your life anymore. In fact, let's be honest, sometimes there's a mild sense of relief when somebody's not in your life anymore that you find difficult or whatever. But, you know, when there's somebody that, that you really do mourn or something that you mourn, I mean, I've done workshops around grief where the thing that's maybe come up for somebody has been something like a country or, you know, a, a relationship, a job that they've lost. All sorts of things break our heart in their loss. The world, the state that the world's in at the moment, we can feel enormous grief for that. And yet, the only reason we feel grief is because we're connected and because we love so in allowing ourselves to feel the pain that's maybe there in loss, then we can feel through that to the love that's there. And that love actually, I think, can then go further and go out and actually really sustain something that's very, very life-affirming. Anyway, so poor old Ananda is distraught. He feels as though his body's gone rigid, he couldn't see straight, and his ideas were terribly unclear. It's actually quite a good description of grief. I think sometimes we do, we just don't know what to do with ourselves in that kind of state. Anyway, the Buddha comes back to Ananda and he says, and I imagine the tone is quite kindly, but he says to Ananda, he says, well, you know, do you think that by dying he's taken away the teachings? Has he taken away the codes? Has he taken away the concentration? Has he taken away the understanding? And Ananda says, well, no, he hasn't. You know, all those things are still there. It's just that he's not there anymore. And the Buddha says, Ananda, have I not already told you that there is separation and parting and division from all that's dear and beloved? How could it be that what is born come to being formed and subject to fall should not fall that is not possible it's as if a, the main branch of a great tree standing firm and solid had fallen so too sariputra has finally attained nirvana how could it be that what's born come to being formed and bound to fall should not fall this is not possible and he then goes on and he says to Ananda something which is very famous line from this couple of lines from the sutra he says therefore Ananda each of you should make himself his island himself and no other his refuge each of you should make the law your island the law and no other so at this point the Buddha is saying take what that person has taught you and really hold that. Make that your refuge, note the person. So I don't, in that, I don't personally hear indifference or lack of care or don't grieve that person or don't love that person. But really, the only true refuge that we can find in our lives is the refuge that we find within or it's the refuge that we find in Dharma, the refuge that we find in our practice. And I think that can give us a rock, it can give us a stability, so that we can feel grief, we can allow our heart to break, because we do have that stability. So the Buddha started there to really give this teaching, and in a way I get the impression he's starting to prepare the disciples for his own death. So Moksha Jyoti said in the introduction that in a way even the Buddha died, 
And that's another reason why we come together on the day of Parinirvana. So even the Buddha, at least the Buddha's physical body, was subject to the very law that he taught. It wasn't over and above that law. It too was of a conditioned nature. And when the condition ceased to exist in that form, then that body too ceased to exist. So in the dying, if you like, the Buddha lived out his teaching. His teaching had life in his death. So the Buddha carries on and the next few months he carries on and he reminisces a bit. He talks a bit about his, his uh, illumination, that's now English, enlightenment, his enlightenment experience. He talks a bit about all sorts of things and he starts to say that he will soon die. He just starts to prepare, particularly Ananda and some of the other um, disciples, that he will in fact be dying. And he says on one point, he says, and this again is a very important um, piece of this particular sutra, he says, I have now taught you things that I have directly known. These things you should thoroughly learn and maintain, put into effect, that this holy life may long endure. And then he says, you should do this for the welfare and the happiness of many, out of compassion for the world, for the good the welfare and the happiness of all. So right there in the Pali Canon, we have what later in Mahayana Buddhism took form as the Bodhisattva ideal. It's there in that, that um, short couple of sentences. The Buddha's saying, I've taught you everything I know. It's up to you, really. You're the people that are going to have to carry on practicing this. And he says, do it not just for your own sake, not just for my sake, but do it for the sake of all. So, actually, that just reminds me, as I'm saying it, it reminds me of a different level, obviously, because Sangharachita hasn't died yet, even though his photograph's on the shrine. Um, it's not there because he's died. It's just presumably there out of respect for his place as founder of the order um, and teacher of so many members of the order. Anyway, he, he gave a talk in 1999 on an order convention in which he talked about the fact that he felt he had, to a great extent, done what he could in terms of the founding of the order. And he said, it's really up to you, you. So we wrote it. I was actually translating it, so it was kind of going in one ear and coming through there, which is quite interesting. Some people say when they translate, they don't actually take in the words. I feel I get a double whammy. Actually, when I'm translating, I get it coming in and I get it going out again. So it was quite a strong moment, actually. He, I, you know, my memory is that he just looked at us and he said, well, I've done what I can. It's up to you, really. It just reminded me of that. Uh, okay, so he carries on. Some more months pass. And then comes the moment where he eats some truffles, it says in some of the texts. I'm not quite sure what truffles are, actually. There's something to do with pigs, I think. Mm? Mushrooms that are kind of mushrooms. So why do I think there's something to do with pigs? Pigs eat them. Okay, there you go. They sniff them out. You see, there you go. So it wasn't that he ate pigs. He ate truffles, okay. So he ate some poison truffles, some magic mushrooms. And he immediately becomes sick, and it's very obvious that he is actually about to die. Now, he does an interesting thing at this point. He actually calls on Ananda 
And he says, some people might blame Chunda, who was the person who gave him this dish of truffles. He said, some people might blame him for giving me what's taking me to my death. I really want you to make sure that doesn't happen. I really want you to make sure. In fact, he says, he has gained great merit in helping me towards my parinirvana. So... You know, just struck by that, that even at that moment, presumably in pain and presumably in some discomfort, he really wants to make sure that there's no blame put on the person who gives him. Because imagine, imagine how you'd feel. Imagine being the person that gave poison mushrooms to the Buddha. Well, you wouldn't be happy, Bunny, really, would you? You'd, you know, you could imagine some level of guilt maybe coming in some point anyway the buddha makes sure that that's what happens and then they go from there to kusanara they go to a sal tree grove and the buddha lays himself down on a it says a couch but i believe it's actually a stone piece of stone some of you will have seen kusanara i personally haven't been there i know lots of people here have been and i'm told that there's an amazing atmosphere there actually in some ways more than in some of the other buddhist pilgrimage places which is kind of interesting And he lies down, and interestingly, he chooses to die in the open air. So, so, you know, I won't go into that in great depth, but it is interesting that so many of the important points in the Buddha's life happened. I suppose it was ancient India. I suppose a lot of things happened in the open air. But it is interesting that nature quite often played quite a strong part in a lot of the events in the Buddha's life. Anyway, he's in the open air, and he... The story goes, what it says in the sutra is that he lies down and these trees, which are not in blossom because it's not the right time of the year for blossom, suddenly blossom and the petals and the blossoms just fall on the body of the Buddha. And again, some of the disciples are kind of like, whoa, (laughs) maybe they're thinking they might have had some magic mushrooms as well. (laughs) So there's all these flowers falling and they really are quite impressed by this. And the Buddha says to them, It's not really a big deal. It's just one of these things that happens when a Buddha passes away. But he takes the opportunity, he says, and although it's a wonderful thing, he says, it's actually not the main way to worship a Buddha. He says, there's a better way than that to worship the Buddha. So he says, um, so these blossoms all scatter and sprinkle and strew themselves upon his body. And heavenly mandarva flowers and heavenly sandalwood powder falls from the sky so i hope there's nobody there with allergies as there are so many these days maybe they didn't have so many allergies then um but the buddha says this is not how a perfect one is honored respected venerated or reverenced rather he says it is the bhikkhu or bhikkhuni the man or woman lay follower who lives according to holy dharma who walks according to the Dharma, that honours, respects and reveres the perfect one. So again, he says, it's the Dharma, it's the path. You have to follow it. That's what's the best way to honour and revere a Buddha. So then he dies. But just before he dies, something, a couple of other things happen. Ananda goes off and has a weep. He's terribly upset that the Buddha's dying. And he says, I'm about to lose my companion, my teacher, he who is everything to me and who treats me with such kindness. He who is so kindly and who is so compassionate. 
So that's what he doesn't go off and lean against the door and say, the Buddha who taught such wonderful metaphysical truths, who did this, who did that, who did the next thing. He says, no, he who is so kindly. Now, this is his companion who's been with him day in and day out for a really long time. So the fact that the quality that comes to his mind that he's so sad to lose is kindness seems quite significant. So the Buddha calls him back and he says the same thing to him that he said before. He says to him, Ananda, remember there is separation, there is loss. He says everything that comes together must fall apart. Everything that's been formed, that's been born, that's come into being is bound to death. And then just he's really just about to die and somebody comes along wanting to see him. So a wanderer called Subhadda comes along and he wants to meet the Buddha. He's heard of the Buddha. He's heard that this amazing teacher is about to die and he really wants the opportunity to see him. And Ananda says, no, I don't think so. He's, you know, he's about to die. He needs some peace and quiet. Just leave him alone. And Subhadda asks again, and he asks again, the Buddha hears this and he shouts out to Ananda. He says, let him come to me, let him come in. And so then he takes his last disciple. So his last disciple is on his deathbed. You know, even at that moment, he still wants to create the conditions for this person to have an experience of going for refuge, to have an experience of meeting him. And um, Subhadda says this, again, it's a very famous um, phrase that you hear again and again in the Pali Canon. He says, when this happens, when the Buddha just speaks to him, the Buddha just gives him a quite short teaching. And he says, um, if I can find it, he says, he says, Lord, this is magnificent. The law has been made clear in so many ways. It's as though the blessed one we're writing the overthrown, revealing the hidden, showing the way to one who's lost, holding up a lamp in darkness for those with eyes to see. I go for refuge to the blessed one. I go for refuge to his dharma. I go for refuge to his sangha. So the experience of just meeting with the Buddha just turns that person. And the Buddha knew that. He knew that in that moment, Subhadda was ripe for that. And I, you know, you fantasize about these things, don't you? You make the movie. and you, Well, I make the movie, the, 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 the Pali Canon. And I imagine that part of it for him is just seeing this person on his deathbed who can yet just call forth such spiritual teaching. And again, you know, my own experience and, you know, um, I went to see Sangharachita, I went to see Banti last July about something and I spent some time with him and we were sitting up in his room and he was talking to me about his Bodhisattva ordination that he'd taken with Dardar Rinpoche and it was like there was just this extraordinary energy coming towards me and, you know, I mean, I'm, I've known Banti for a long time, I haven't always agreed with him about everything, I've had ups and downs with him. But nevertheless, he's the person that introduced me to the Dharma. He was my preceptor. He's the person through whom I've had the strongest sense of something beyond what I myself can kind of touch or, or taste or whatever. 
So I was sitting there and it really felt like this incredibly powerful transmission. I felt so touched by this conversation. And then we went downstairs together. We were in Majimaloka, for those of you who know it. So we were up in his room, which is up a flight of stairs. We went down to the shrine room to sit together. And he stood up and he's just this doddery elderly man, you know. And it was something about this contrast between this amazing kind of energy, which was just totally kind of present, and then this very frail 80-year-old person. And actually it was a bit, I found it a bit of a shock because I needed to help him down the stairs and it just felt really quite, um, in itself it felt like a bit of a teaching. You know, because in a way the body and the kind of spirit are so obviously so connected and yet somehow, I mean I know what I'm like when I get a headache, which is partly why I was in such a film mid the other day was because I'd done something to my neck and I thought, you know, actually, you don't really need to be like that. You actually can have free-flowing energy even when you're in pain. You know, there's people that I know that do that in all sorts of ways. Like the Jamala is somebody who really impresses me by how she can actually remain so positive. You know, I know she doesn't always, but, you know, a lot of the time that energy just really flows. And then we went downstairs, Banting and I went downstairs to the shrine room, and we sat down facing each other. And again, suddenly it was just like it was all back there. It was just like really... I felt very privileged to actually have that kind of sense of just what is so kind of... <sighs> words fail me. Anyway, so I kind of wonder if in some way Subida's experience was he saw this frail, elderly, sickly, probably vomiting because he'd been poisoned, kind of man lying there, and yet could feel through that this sense of extraordinary depth extraordinary kindness, extraordinary kind of practice. So the Buddha goes on, just after Subhadra goes, the Buddha gives his last words, which are terribly well known. He says, It is in the nature of all formations to dissolve, attain perfection through diligence. So he says to his disciples, All conditioned things are impermanent. This was the thing that he realized at the moment of his enlightenment, and it's the last thing he says before he dies. All conditioned things are impermanent. With mindfulness, with diligence, make an effort. So that's the teaching that he leaves. The sutra carries on and it becomes a bit esoteric around how, what do you do with the remains of a Buddha after he dies? So I'm not actually going into that because we probably don't really need to know that. But... Um, I wanted to just draw out some points really from just that bit of the sutra. So that last kind of period of the Buddha's life. So first of all, I do want to just pull out a little bit about the threefold path. The fact that that was the teaching that the Buddha chose to give again and again and again in that la those last moments of his life. So the threefold path, ethics, meditation and wisdom, very, very basic, very, very practical, all to do with how we live really. Our ethics, just how do we interrelate with other beings? How do we live our life? Our meditation, our concentration, the kind of real um, nitty-gritty nuts and bolts of how we sit down and how we meditate and how we work with our own mind and mental states. And then wisdom. Now, wisdom for Buddhism is seeing things as they really are. So the Buddha talks about that he talks about understanding and he puts it again and again alongside this teaching that all composite things dissolve that is what that teaching of 
wisdom is. That is what wisdom and that threefold path really is. It's the understanding that all things are impermanent. It's the understanding that all conditioned phenomenon, and that means you, it means me, it means everything, it meant him, are subject to dissolution, are subject to death. So, But for Buddhism, wisdom and the seeing of things as they really are isn't just seeing things as impermanent. It's seeing what's known as the three characteristics of conditioned existence. So the Buddha's pointing through, if you like, impermanence. Impermanence is perhaps the most accessible layer of those three marks. So the Buddha taught that everything that exists has these three characteristics. Everything that exists in the conditioned world is impermanent. It's insubstantial and it's painful. Okay. So let me just unpack that a little bit. So impermanence in a way is very obvious, isn't it? We know that. We know it. We might not live as though we knew it, but we do know it, that everything that comes into being, everything that's born, has within it its own end, its own dissolution. But it goes further than that. The Buddha teaches more than that. He says, not only are all conditioned phenomena impermanent, not only is the nothing that lasts forever. He says there's no thing that lasts forever. So there's a truth of insubstantiality. Let me unpack that by an illustration, which is very common, very traditional, which is that of a leaf. So if I say to you, imagine a leaf on a tree, everybody can imagine or remember what a leaf looks like. You can, if you're particularly visual, you can maybe even shut your eyes and see a leaf. If you're not particularly visual, you can just remember what a leaf is like. Well, if we think about that leaf, it has a whole number of characteristics. It has shape and form and colour, smell, um, yeah, scent, that's what I mean. It doesn't have smell, does it? We have smell. It smells. It, you know what I mean? We smell, it smells. He, she, it smells. Anyway, um, so the, the leaf's born. It comes into being at a particular moment because the conditions were right to create that leaf. So the leaf comes into being. It has a particular colour, particular shape, particular smell, particular... Uh, texture, weight, all those things. Time passes, the conditions change and the leaf changes. So instead of being maybe small and shut like that and white, it opens up, it becomes green. Its texture changes, it becomes smooth rather than, you know, furry. And then time passes, the conditions change and it becomes golden rather than green. Its weight changes, it's lighter. A golden leaf weighs less than the green one did. Everything about it just changes. Everything changes. So what Buddhism's saying is that, yes, everything changes. There is no leaf within that. That's the kind of intrinsic leaf around which these other things are hanging, if you like. There is only the coming into being of that leaf, the changing of that leaf, and the final passing away of that leaf. Now, that's true for you, it's true for me. At a particular moment in time, the conditions were right for me to be born. That was a few years ago now. Time's moved on. Things have changed. I look quite different from how I looked then. You know, time will carry on passing. <laughs> I still look quite similar, actually. I've got quite similar face. When you see photographs of me as a kid, I do look quite similar. And I've got this photograph of me at, like, two, and I'm going which I like to think of as a teaching mudra. <laughs> but I'm not completely sure it was. But anyway, so time passes, the conditions change, and every single part 
of that conditioned phenomenon, whether it's you, me, the leaf, the whole universe has changed. There's only the process of change. So that's what the Buddha's saying. He's saying not only is it that the leaf doesn't last forever, he's saying there is no leaf outside those things that come together to create leaf in a passing moment. Now, that can be a bit scary. But actually, the other side of that truth, if you like, is the truth that all beings arise in dependence upon conditions and that we are all part of those conditions. So if you like, the corollary of that particular way of looking at things is that we are all deeply interconnected, that we all of us create the conditions, form part of the conditions, arise out of conditions that we hold in common, are part of those conditions and as time passes those conditions change we change actually it can be quite liberating if we can but see it like that but the third condition the third characteristic of conditioned existence is that it's painful now it's not that conditioned existence is painful that conditioned existence just is it just is as it is what's painful is that we just do not like it very much you know in some quite deep extremely deep primordial way beyond deep level we cling to this illusion we desperately cling to the illusion of separate self we desperately want to believe in permanence and we desperately want to believe in substance we want to believe that we exist well we do exist you know you sometimes read things about this kind of teaching you think oh my god i don't exist that isn't actually what Buddhism is saying. We do exist, but we don't exist in the way we think we exist. We don't exist as such separate units. We don't exist. Um, we don't have independent origination or independent existence. Our existence is dependent on so many other factors. And our existence is part of so many other factors. So the law of insubstantiality, the, this mark of conditioned existence, doesn't say you don't exist. It just says you exist, we exist, I exist, a bit differently from how we think we do. And the painfulness comes in when we try to fit reality into how we'd like it to be. So I know we, I'm sure everybody's had at least some experience that things just not being how we'd like them to be or being how we don't like them to be. In which case, you know, we try and pull towards us those things that we do like and push away those things that we don't like. And what this is saying is that if we just stop doing that, there's a gorgeous expression which I can't quite remember, but it's something like um, no craving, no aversion, a mind at ease, a being at ease. It's something about just being at ease because we're not fighting constantly against the way things really are. So, this is one of the things that the Buddha just brings out. In each of these teachings, every teaching that he gives in those last 12 months of his life, he just brings this up again and again. He says, all conditioned phenomenon are impermanent and are insubstantial. So that's the main thing he teaches. And he dies, so... And the other thing that I wanted to bring out is like the thing that one of the things that comes through for me in all this is his kindness. So, you know, just thinking of that teaching that all oh, conditioned phenomena are impermanent, it's not very comforting, you know. 
I mean, there have been times in the last 20 years or more when I have desperately wanted to believe in God. Now, this is partly because I grew up a Catholic. And I quite like, there were a lot of things I quite liked about Catholicism. But I could never quite get myself into believing in God. But there's been times when I really would have liked that. I would like to consider that somewhere, somebody, some people are waiting for me. You know, there's been times when I would have quite liked that. But actually, so in a way, this isn't terribly comforting. But in another way, it does seem to me it is quite comforting because it rings true. In some way, this rings true to me. It rings true that things come into being and they pass away from being. And it's interesting that there's so much kindness in this because I think we need kindness to really take this on board. We need kindness to face impermanence. I don't think we can do it cold. I don't think we can do it without a real level of love. And the thing for me about this is that it is to do with love. You know, I think when we come across this idea, there are two possible responses. One is that we just want to cling frantically to everything that we hold dear. Or the other is to think, okay, I'm not touching anything. There's no point in actually getting involved with anybody because we're going to lose them. Now, I think for me, the real kind of gift that Buddhism has given me is at least a glimmering of how you can hold your heart open enough to lose and love, how we can actually just acknowledge that loss is part of being a human being. But that doesn't mean don't love. If anything, it means love even more. If anything, I think it means embrace life even more. So, you know, we're looking at at death on a day like this. We're coming together and we're celebrating, if you like, which seems a strange kind of thing to do, We're celebrating death, we're contemplating death, we're sharing with each other perhaps the names and facts of people that we've loved and we've lost. So it's very sobering, it's quite a sobering day, Parinirvana day, you know, and it's very, very touching and very moving. But actually for me it's a day that talks of love, it really does speak of opening our hearts and, and just sort of loving And it really seems to me it's a day to celebrate life because that's how we can celebrate. That's how we can really honour those deaths and those losses is to really embrace life in all of its kind of, you know, warts and all, just to really embrace everything that we love, embrace life. In the, uh, there's a puja that we sometimes do which I think isn't the one that we're going to do tonight. It's called a threefold puja because it's got three stages. And in that we say, the Buddha was born as we are born. Now I thought, we don't say this, but you could say the Buddha died. But could we say as we shall die? I don't know. Would we say that? The Buddha died as we shall die. Well, in a sense, yes. Because the Buddha's physical form died, you know. And our physical form will die. But in between those lines, there will be two other lines, which is what the Buddha overcame, we too can overcome. What the Buddha attained, we too can attain. So the Buddha really, really embraced life. He went looking for the teachings. He went looking for answers because he loved. You know, sometimes you read it and you think, oh God, he left his wife and child. 
That's not very good, is it? But actually, the reason why he did that was because he wanted to find an end to suffering, their suffering as much as anybody else's suffering. So the Buddha really embraced life. And between reaching that point of enlightenment, having that real understanding of how things actually are and the point of his death, he just gave everything that he had. He held back nothing. He completely gave of himself so that other people, other beings, including the ones that he'd left behind, could also have that opportunity and touch that teaching. So will all of us come someday to our death? Will we be able to sit sit or lie? We just don't know when that's going to happen. I mean, I was very struck just looking at some of these photographs. They're very young, some of the people whose photographs are on this shrine. We really don't know what might happen. We never know when it might come. You know, we mistakenly think that elderly people are going to die first. Now, we know it isn't actually necessarily like that. For a long time, I worked as an HIV counsellor. And there was a particular period in one of the places that I worked where a lot of the clients were in really good health and four counsellors died, none of them from an HIV or AIDS-related illness. You know, one of them got knocked down, literally got knocked down by a bus. One of them died of lung cancer. One of them was mugged outside a gay bar and died about a week later. And I can't remember how the other one died, but four people died. And not one of them had an HIV-related illness. And yet everybody, this was in the 80s, when to be told that you were HIV positive was really no, you know, it was a really big, quite heavy sort of thing to be told. There weren't the kind of medicines and things that there are now. But anyway, you know, it was, it was really quite ironic, you know, that we were working in this situation where you were kind of preparing, helping to prepare these people to die, and then all these other people died. You know, you just really never know. We never know when it will come. So the only way we can really be prepared for that is to really live our lives. It's the only way we can get to that moment of death without feeling real strong regret that we didn't live the life that we wanted to live. So if anything, for me, the day of Nirvana calls to me to live in the best way I possibly can. It calls to me to actually try and live in a world that is the best possible world. It calls on me to leave behind a world that's the best possible world. So we're asked in a way to accept impermanence and death. Well, I'd say let's accept life. You know, let's really look at what life is today. What are the challenges facing us in life today? What are we doing with those challenges? Are we embracing those challenges? Are we embracing life? Are we really doing what the Buddha suggested we do? Are we practicing? Are we living our life as fully as we possibly can? Is there ethics, the ethics that we really want it to be? Or do we let ourselves off the hook? You know, is our meditation the meditation practice that we would like to have? Or do we let ourselves off the hook? And do we live in harmony with that truth of impermanence? Do we live as though interconnected to all beings? Do we really believe that every single thing we do has an effect? And in today's world, you can see that perhaps even more strongly than ever. Do we live for the welfare of all beings as the Buddha asked his disciples to do?